On a summer morning in 1944, two women went for a walk in Woodland near the eastern French town of Cluny. The outing was a regular event. It was a pleasant diversion from the penury and isolation they were experiencing as a pair of exiles far from home. One of them, the elder, was a German writer, the other a Swiss pianist. In the forest, they came across a group of men who declared they were members of the French resistance. The women didn't want any trouble, had been living in France for the whole duration of the war and were looking forward to going home soon. The men were bristling with guns and excitable. They interrogated the two women and there and then, completely out of the blue, came to the summary conclusion that they were Nazi spies. You're listening to The Kiss, the story of the making of a movie masterpiece, and this is episode 13, A Series of Violences. Being asked to write a film script for Georg Wilhelm Pabst was not something anyone would have turned down, let alone a writer failing to revisit her past successes. Krista Winslow drove to Paris in her beloved car. There she would join the rest of the team working on the Austrian director's new project, a movie called Jeune Fille en Détresse, or Girls in Trouble. While she might have been a bit down at the thought of yet another schoolgirl story, she would have taken heart from the fact that Pabst was known for making films with a strong and sympathetic feminine narrative. He's best known now for Pandora's Box, and for The Diary of a Lost Girl, the films that launched the career and cemented the reputation of the striking American actress Louise Brooks. Diary of a Lost Girl, a silent film made in 1929, is also partially set in an institution for girls, this time a reform school for the wayward. Pabst learned his craft from none other than Karl Froelich, for whom he'd gone to work as an assistant director in the early 20s. Just like Froelich, he had a knack for finding and building the careers of exceptional actresses, including Brooks and Greta Garbo. Both directors also had reputations for being on the humane side of filmmaking, earning the admiration and respect of their colleagues. Girls in Trouble was financed by a company called Globe Films and shot at the Joinville Studios in Paris. It was launched at the Venice Film Festival in August 1939. Within a week of it opening in France, Europe was at war. At another time, in another war, Christa had found herself washed up in Paris. Then she had been a newlywed young woman, living in luxury thanks to her immensely wealthy husband. In 1914, all the world had been in Paris, it had seemed to her. The city had been the centre of art and high culture. She had mixed in those days with painters and poets, sat at the arty end of the table, while her husband entertained at the other, the political end, getting heated about world affairs. And now here she was, 25 years on, washed up again with the artists and writers, so many having come to Paris only to find themselves in the path of a potential German invasion. Where were they all going to go now? Where would be the safest place, and how long would they have to stay there? Many life-changing decisions were made in these feverish days and weeks. Pabst himself had been hoping to emigrate to the USA, but now found himself forced to return to Germany, where, impressively, he managed to make movies without any Nazi propaganda content. What options were open to Christa, a Prussian-born, non-Jewish aristocrat? While she was no fan of the Nazis, 
and in America had backed Dorothy Thompson on an anti-Nazi crusade, there's no evidence that she was on any kind of wanted list or in physical danger. She had friends of similar persuasions who remained in Germany throughout the war. Why did she decide to stay in France rather than go home? Perhaps she wasn't thinking about the war and the German invasion at all, but about her career. Money was always an issue for her. Long parted from her husband, the Baron Hartwani, and having to earn from her writing, Christa was pushing out story after story to her literary agents abroad. The Pabst film didn't make much of an impression and wasn't going to supply the much-needed big break she needed. Laying low somewhere inexpensive and getting down to work must have seemed an attractive option. Also, Christa was among a set of people for whom Europe had felt borderless for years. Writers and artists in particular moved around the continent to wherever was fashionable, or the air was good, or the light better, or the company desirable. We've seen how Leontine Zagen, the actress and director, hopped from country to country whenever she got bored with her current situation. Christa, too, was very mobile, often getting into her car and heading for a new border. Having friends scattered all over the place and speaking multiple European languages was the key. So much of Europe felt like home. And so it doesn't seem so eccentric that Christa, a writer and artist with an international reputation, should have chosen to lay low in the French Riviera. In the 20s and 30s, the Côte d'Azur was a wonderfully detached place where the world's most glamorous figures ran away only to mingle with crowds of others exactly like themselves. It had originally become a resort in the previous century, when the British aristocracy discovered it and transformed a poor olive-growing region into a place of tasteful and genteel escape. By the 1920s, the British had been replaced by wealthy Americans, film stars and society figures. This pine-flecked coastline, lapped by a shimmering sea, was the epitome of fashionable retreat. The style icon that was Coco Chanel is forever associated with the Riviera. Christa motored down to Nice, the region's biggest city, and from there on to a town called Cagnes-sur-Mer. This little beauty of higgledy-piggledy cobbled streets and crooked stone houses was actually bursting at the seams with writers and artists who all came looking for a safe haven that was also easy on the eye, a kind of Provençal St Ives. Many of those fleeing Paris for the South ultimately hoped to hop across to the French North African colonies and were hanging around Nice and Marseille waiting for an opportunity to escape. In Cagnes, Christa rented a house at 12 Rue du Piolet. It stood in a rather ramshackle row, typical of the region with its shutters and clay roof tiles, but it was not small and had a balcony from which there was a breathtaking view of the Cap d'Antibes. It also had a garden, which in the coming years was to prove abundantly useful. Christa didn't live in the house alone. She shared it with another woman who has been variously described as her friend, girlfriend, lover. Her name was Simone Gentet. She was Swiss and ten years younger than Christa. Some sources say she was a painter, some an author, some a pianist. How they came to be cohabiting is also not clear. One contemporary source says the two women had known each other for years, while another claims they'd only just met in Nice. Poor Simone. The lasting description of her is not a pleasant one. Christa is supposed to have described her to a friend as a morphine addict and an alcoholic. This may be true, also it may not. 
We know from Christa's letters that Simone was lazy when it came to pulling her weight in the garden, but we also know that she worked on translating Christa's writing into French. Simone was not an easy person to live with, we can glean that much from Christa's letters, and drove Christa up the wall at times with her moaning. But they were stuck with each other, part of an interdependent band of émigrés who looked on helplessly as borders closed and their status changed. When the Germans defeated the French army, which they did with shocking speed, their high command based itself in Paris. The South, where Christa and her many friends were living, was part of a so-called unoccupied zone run by the Vichy government. Under Vichy rule, the South was about to experience similar anti-Jewish violence as the rest of German-occupied Europe. The many Jews who had fled to Nice for sanctuary when the Germans invaded now found themselves rounded up by the Vichy authorities and sent to internment camps. The South remained under Vichy until the Germans took over in 1942. By then, the French resistance gained a foothold in the area with a particularly strong communist element to it. In short, if Christa had hoped to be able to secrete herself for a while and wait the war out, then she was very soon woken up to reality. Her picturesque, mountain-framed idyll was about to experience desperately hard times and unimaginable violence. By the spring of 1941, Christa was dependent on handouts from friends abroad and the kindness of local residents. Dorothy Thompson, her friend and former lover, was sending money when she could, firstly from a charity fund and then from her own pocket. Christa wrote to thank her and to describe the conditions in which she was living. They were dire. There was no flour and therefore no pasta, which had been part of the region's staple diet. The meat ration was one piece a week. There was no milk or butter. One egg a week and no fish at all. No soap, no new clothes. Shoes had fast worn out and their soles replaced by pieces of wood. Christa had been declared bankrupt in London and her assets there frozen. She still sent written pieces out to her agent but was failing to make anything much from her writing. In any case, her time was largely spent with survival. Not just her own, but for a group of other hold-up foreigners like herself. She put her garden to good use, growing what she could and dashing out into the street to shovel up horse manure for her potatoes. But feeding a large number of adults and children was taking its toll on her. Krista begged Dorothy to try and get a Red Cross parcel to them and itemised what they needed. Rice, canned meat, sugar. These things, she said, would be an indescribable joy for a group of pale people and a few children of people who are prisoners in Germany, of whom I take care. It's unclear if at this stage Christa's letters were censored. Presumably they weren't, because she mentioned in this same letter to Dorothy that one of her friends, the Jewish writer Franz Bly, who had nearly starved to death, managed to get hold of a visa and was headed for Marseille. He certainly will turn up in New York one day or another, she wrote. Bly did indeed eventually reach the States, where he settled in New York. Had she been instrumental in getting him out? She was certainly credited later with helping Jewish friends escape, either keeping them hidden or getting them out of France. Christa wrote to Dorothy that they were losing weight, even joked that it wouldn't do her any harm. There are pictures of her from this period, indeed looking somewhat slimmer than in her high society days, but smiling at the camera in her garden 
stopping for a moment from her labours, leaning on her rake, dressed in loose trousers and a man's shirt. What an extraordinary life change for Krista Winslow. What a complete contrast this toiling gardener makes to the fur-bedecked baroness who once attended countless parties and who travelled around Europe in her sleek car. Even her poorest moments as a trainee sculptor in Munich would have seemed luxurious at this dire moment of need for her and her friends and neighbours. Krista did her best to rally and support this dispossessed group of immigrants in Cagnes, but as she herself put it, the peasants themselves were starving and there was much, much too little bread for young working people. Krista also kept in regular touch with her dear and lifelong friend, the fellow German writer Hertha von Gebhardt, who remained in Germany and continued to write successfully during the war years. Could Krista have done that? Stayed in Germany and written? Could she have done what Hertha did and immersed herself in imaginary worlds and kept her head down? Ironically, having decided to stay out of Nazi Germany, she had placed herself in a much more perilous position than her friends who had opted to remain, and greater upheaval was on the horizon. In November 1942, Hitler ordered Vichy France to be occupied in line with the rest of the country. The foreigners who had settled in the area were on the move again. In February, Christa and Simone packed up their most valuable belongings and headed north. They travelled through a snowstorm, as I understand it she still had her car, and arrived in the medieval town of Cluny in Burgundy. Both women were ill and tired, fed up, fractious. They booked into a hotel, and after all those months of scrabbling round for food in rural Provence, finally enjoyed eating someone else's cooking again. Slowly, they adapted to their new environment and settled into life in this attractive town. Krista resumed her writing, typing away at a new play, while Simone also worked, translating Krista's pieces into French. It was time, Krista felt, to go back to Germany. And from there to the hot funny castle in Hungary. In Hungary she could be with her dear sister-in-law Irene. Krista had a very strong attachment to Lati's sister and had dedicated her novel The Child Manuela to her. Hungary and the hot funny estate seemed the best prospect for her at this point, even though she hadn't heard from her sister-in-law for a while. She wrote to her friend Hertha von Gebhardt in June 1944 that she had obtained a visa for Germany and that she was heading home within weeks. Which was when the two women, Krista and Simone, went for a walk in the woods and never returned. We can never be entirely sure what happened in that forest outside Cluny on June the 10th, 1944. We know that Krista Winslow and her partner, Simone Gente, were summarily shot and killed by a group of men who claimed to be members of the French resistance. We know that the two women were accused of working for the Nazis. We know that an awful lot of people were beyond shocked when the news finally reached them of the horrific and frightening death of their beloved Krista. I don't want to paint a detailed picture of the murder because it might well be inaccurate. I don't know who said what in that forest. I don't know if Krista and Simone were terrified. They probably were and pleaded for their lives or if it all happened so quickly that they didn't know what was going on. I hope so. We know that the initial line was that the two women had been executed 
because they were deemed to be Nazi spies. And this was the version of events that reached Dorothy Thompson back in the States much, much later. How appalling it must have been to have received that news. Even at a time of such barbarism and inhumanity, how unbelievable that this genteel middle-aged writer, who had made her name celebrating the great spirit of love in all its forms, could have been so viciously dispatched. It was a time of inordinate barbarity. On the exact same day that Christa and Simone were so brutally wiped out, and around a hundred miles away to the west, members of an SS division shot or burnt to death 624 men, women and children in the village of Oradour-sur-Glain. The horrific act came in response to French resistance activity in the area. What was about to be unleashed was a wave of violence and bloodshed in acts of retaliation across France. Was that the reason why Christa and Simone were so thoughtlessly murdered? Was it a combination of Christa's German accent and the fact that she lived among exiled Germans in France? Was it that her constant typing away at her typewriter night and day aroused suspicion? Was it the fact that she openly befriended German soldiers while in Cluny? Christa came from a military family. Her brother Ralph was a soldier, after all, and had no problem with chatting with the ordinary rank and file members of the German army. But did that make her a spy? Did it mean that in this feverish time of guerrilla warfare, mere suspicion warranted instant action? Anyway, would a spy have been so openly friendly with German officers? News of Christa's death did not reach her friends immediately. It was a time of chaos and almost daily bad news. The death of two foreign women had to contend for attention with so many other ghastly facts coming out of Europe, not least the horrific massacre at the village. And when it did reach the ears of friends back in Germany or the States, much, much later, they had to accept the fact that the resistance fighters had made a terrible mistake. What they didn't know at that point was that the men who murdered Christa were not resistance fighters at all. Dorothy Thompson, who sought out the truth and exposed lies for a living, was of course not going to let the Nazi spy accusation remain unchallenged, and neither were other friends of Christa dotted around Europe and America. But I don't want to give the impression that they all jumped to clear her name within days of the murder. No, it was after the war that they began to unravel the truth of what befell Christa Winslow. It wasn't until the end of 1946 that Dorothy, who had been trying in vain to find out what had become of her friend, heard the truth from the French ambassador in Washington. He had looked into the case on her behalf and discovered that Christa and Simone had not been killed by the resistance after all. No, they had been victims of a common criminal, a man called Lambert, who, along with his gang, had been arraigned and charged with willful murder. The trial did not take place until 1947, and then all the men were acquitted through lack of evidence. These men had not only killed Christa, but also her reputation, and it was her good name that so many friends rallied to clear in the years immediately after the war. Dorothy Thompson, a journalist of high regard and influence, found herself at the centre of attempts to prove Christa's innocence of spying claims. She received letters from many friends begging her not only to find out details, but to publicly defend Christa. Hertha von Gebhardt, Christa's lifelong friend, wrote to Dorothy to say that she'd tracked down Christa's former husband, Lassie, who was now living in Oxford. 
he was now a bitter old man, she told Dorothy, and he claimed that Christa had been with a group of German officers when they'd gone for that walk in Cluny. Lotzi felt that Christa had been very careless to have been seen with German officers. But Hertha felt adamant that it was only carelessness, that Christa would never have had anything to do with Nazis, that she had just enjoyed speaking her mother tongue again, and that some of the officers were, as she said, really decent boys. Dear Dorothy, she pleads in her letter, is it possible to rectify these hideous accusations in the press against Christa and save her honour? Another friend who responded to Dorothy's investigation was Helene Meyer-Grefer from Munich. She had been one of the last people to hear from Christa before her death and had received a letter from her saying she hoped to be back in Germany within days. Helene raises a suggestion that Simone might have been to blame. This is what Helene claims about Simone in her letter. A rumour persists obstinately that she had been a spy. Christa once described her as a hysterical, dissolute morphine addict and alcoholic, but she certainly knew nothing of Simone's other activity, should the rumour be true. Simone is supposed to have been convicted, and since the two lived together, Christa was suspected also and shot. There's no evidence at all to back up this rumour, but it does suggest that Christa's friends were not fans of her final partner. In the same year, an article appeared in a German-language newspaper in America entitled, What Did Christa Winslow Do? It was written by an old friend of hers, a writer called Hilda Walter, who had last seen Christa in France in 1939. Hilda passionately set the record straight. She described at length who Christa was, how inconceivable it was that she could have anything to do with the Nazis, and how much she had done for Jews and fellow émigrés both in France and before that in Germany. Christa could have had her politically neutral film scripts and books published back in Germany, said Hilda, but she never wanted to be published by Nazis. Christa had gone to France as a guest to make a film, she had gone down to join the international bohemian set in the south of France because she felt she could live quietly and cheaply there. Hilda Walter probably came up with the most convincing explanation for why Christa and Simone had been shot in 1944. In a follow-up article in the same newspaper two months later, she revealed that she'd received numerous communications and pieces of information from people in various countries, but one in particular had proved very enlightening. Someone had sent her a clipping of an article written by Donald B. Robinson, a former army liaison officer who had landed on France on D-Day. It was called Why France Seethes with Hatreds and is an extraordinarily frank and disturbing piece of journalism. In it, Robinson recounts what he calls the communist terror that he saw take hold immediately after the Allies liberated France. The resistance had factionalised by this point and the communist elements carried out a wave of terror, particularly in the south of the country. Robinson writes, Here, among these young thugs and gangsters, was the making of an excellent army for the French communists and they quickly recognised it. From among these forces they organised street patrols to ferret out alleged collaborationists. These gangs many of whom were trigger-happy youths of no more than 14 years, were quick to shoot at anyone who disregarded their order to halt and identify yourself. 
every night was made hideous by the staccato fusillades of their machine-gun fire. There's no doubt that many of their victims were traitors who deserved to die, but their execution, without even a pretense of trial, served only to make martyrs of them and shake the faith of other Frenchmen in the possible rebirth of a free, decent France. Moreover, a great many of the victims were innocent. At the famous resort town of Antibes, where scores were unceremoniously shot and hundreds imprisoned, the communists perpetrated an outrage which might have been envied by the Gestapo. Now, of course, Christa and Simone were no longer on the Côte d'Azur when they were murdered, and their killing took place before the end of the war, but there's a strange ring of familiarity when we hear about the summary nature of the killings, also about the idea of young men roaming about looking for victims. Could Christa's murderer have been one of these thugs that Robinson so chillingly describes? And so it seems that Christa's death was nothing more than another act of brutality in a place and time when such things were all too common. Was her crime merely being too friendly with fellow Germans in an enemy country? Was she in the wrong place at the wrong time, a victim of criminals who claimed to be freedom fighters? Was she too naive, too trusting, believing in a boundless world of Bohemians for whom nationalism simply didn't register? Hers wasn't the only horror story to emerge at the end of the war. As the smoke cleared, so the destinies of so many lost friends were discovered. The cast and crew of Mädchen in Uniform were scattered all over the place. Leontine Zagen, the film's director, continued to travel backwards and forwards despite the war, spending part of it in South Africa, part of it in London. After the war, she was back in South Africa where she founded the country's national theatre and directed both black and white South Africans in productions for the rest of her life. A British newspaper reported that Dorothea Wieck, who played the beloved Fräulein von Bernburg, had been killed in the Dresden bombings. In fact, Dorothea survived the war and remained in Germany, where she later appeared in a handful of films. Hertha Thieler, the star of the film, was known to be working as a hospital cleaner in Switzerland. Emilia Under, who had played the headmistress, died right at the start of the war. Hedy Kriller, who played the deputy head and was a Jew, escaped to Argentina, where she later picked up a career acting in television. Karl Froehlich, who, as we know, continued to make films under Nazi rule and was a member of the Nazi party himself, made two more movies in the 1950s. Despite being widely liked and respected, his reputation was destroyed. And if this extraordinary film pioneer is known at all these days, then it's as a Nazi. Full stop. The screenwriter, Walter Zuppa, Froehlich's closest colleague and right-hand man, and who had advised on Märchen, committed suicide along with his Jewish wife just before she was about to be taken away by the authorities. Christa's brother, Ralph, lost his home in the Allied bombings of Berlin and moved in with friends in what became the Russian zone. He stood to inherit Christa's Munich home, but it's not known if he did so. Christa's husband, Lutzi, who had briefly been in prison for political reasons in Hungary in the late 20s, had moved to France and finally lived in exile in England. When the war ended, he returned to Hungary, where he taught at the University of Budapest. He died in 1961, aged 80, having lived a modest existence in a communist country. During the war, 
his family's immense wealth was entirely lost. His brother Ferenc's internationally important art collection was looted extensively by the Nazis. Their sister, Irene, gentle, lovely Irene, Christa's dear friend, was transported to Auschwitz along with her husband, where they both died. I leave the last comment about Christa Winslow to Dorothy Thompson. Dorothy brought a beauty and passion to journalism and could cram profound thoughts and ideas even into a hastily scribbled message. After the war, she found herself frequently fielding desperate requests from Christa's many friends who wanted to be assured that Christa was not, as the papers were saying, a Nazi spy. Of course she was anti-Nazi, she huffs impatiently to yet another inquirer in a letter, then goes on to say this about Christa. The life of that sensitive woman, made for beauty and love, was a series of violences. The violence done to her by a Prussian school, the violence of the First War, the violence of Bolshevism in Hungary, the violence that broke her marriage and imprisoned her husband, the violence of Nazism that finally made her in exile. The drama, it seems to me, had to end by the logic of destiny just as it did, that she died by violence, at the hands not of her enemies, but of her friends. Next time, on The Kiss, we end our story. We see what happens when a film and its star, both long forgotten, are suddenly rediscovered and dragged back to ecstatic public attention. The Kiss was written and presented by Bibi Berkey. It was directed by Mark Lingwood. Studio production was by Francis Nutbeam Webber and original music composed by Timothy Bond. It was brought to you by Tempest Productions. <laughs> <laughs>